Welcome to Asking for a Friend, a show where we discuss awkward, vulnerable, and practical life issues. My name is Ethan Canning, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Cook. Today, our guest is Samuel Cottle. He's currently working in real estate and building some really interesting things on YouTube. We get into all of that in this episode. There's lots of gems in this one, and I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as Ethan and I did. Before we dive into specifics, Sam, can you give us just a little bit of background on you, where you come from, maybe the first business that you built, um, sure, and how that went for you? Yeah, I'm Sam. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, about 9,000 people, a very oil and gas-focused town, technically the pipeline crossroads of the world. Um, I don't know many people that are actually proud of that, um, but... It's, it's a thing there. Um, so I grew up like seeing people take those kind of jobs. People go to college, you know, 30 minutes away, then come back and work for one of the big oil and gas companies or some things like that. That's kind of like a typical trajectory. And I knew early I, I didn't, I wasn't ready for college. I was just wanting to move away and like try things and so I, you know, did an internship with this big ministry in Kansas City, and then a year and a half, I kind of learned some new skills there. And I, I, I now I, as I'm telling the story, I see that I've just been like stacking skills. So I, I learned some skills there, and then moved to Colorado. Had a chance to move to Colorado, and that allowed me to stack more skills. And then started going to school, and really like found a love for business, and and started to see that as part of my story throughout my childhood. And my first business, my first business that like ha- had customers, served customers, and like provided a product or service was macrameing necklaces and bracelets for people in the sixth grade. And my mom had taught me how to do it. And I would do it like under my desk in class because <laughs> I could just do it by feel. And I had to sell them for like 10 bucks a piece or something and made a couple hundred bucks. And, you know, you just follow the fad. <laughs> what was the concession stand business? That one. Yeah. Because you got like some vertical I, integration in there. I and... gave away all the money though. So it just doesn't really count to me. Um, Why did you, well, talk us through what the business yeah. was and then tell me. So I was, I think I was, I was 16, was driving around my town and noticed in this city owned like lot that there was an old trailer concession stand. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. First of all, I want that second. And then third, like, how can I make money with that? And so I, I noticed that there's this, this one place where they do a lot of the little league baseball games and that there was no concessions and everybody always complained about it. You had to like bring your own stuff. And so I'm like, I, I think I could approach the city. So I, I went to my friend's dad was the chief of police. So he introduced me to the city manager and the city manager, I asked, say, hey, hey, can I use this trailer and I'll provide concession stands down here at this these baseball games and I'll we'll do it through my church and like the, this youth group will like do it. But I started making a lot of money. So I got my mom to like front the initial purchase of all the stuff from Sam's and it was like, you know, big pickles and nachos and bags of chips and sodas, like not complex stuff. And we would do it like three nights a week whenever there were baseball games. And I think that summer we brought in like $30,000 of profit. Wow. 
And you're how old at this point? I was 16. It was so connected to my youth group that I'm like, ah, we'll just like give like this will be like a youth trip. So I like funded, self-funded a youth trip. <laughs> For how many people? You were just well, like... probably 30, 40 people. We did like a retreat. Where was the trip to? It was just like a little retreat to some like cabin area. Like I love that you as a 15 or 16 year old sought out the city manager. I think a lot of people would have driven by and thought, I want that. And that's where it would have stopped. But like you went and found the person that had the authority to sell the thing yeah, to you. Yeah, that's something interesting about growing up in a small town. Like those people in leadership, they seem pretty accessible. Yeah, yeah. So I have a question. I mean, on your boldness, I've, I've found that people generally only pursue ideas or avenues which someone has shown them. So, you know, going back to mentorship, uh, did did someone, did you have someone in your life that was encouraging you to do things like this? Or did, is your brain wired in a way where you're just like, I should just go do this thing and you just kind of made it happen? Yeah, a little bit of both. So I remember as a kid, my dad used to always pitch me this business idea and it was, hey, let's get some stencils and some spray paint and let's go door to door and, you know, propose five dollars to spray paint these people's you know number house number on their on their curb everybody has it it's fading he's like i'd pay five dollars every single summer for somebody to touch it up and like i never did that but i always like saw the opportunity and i and eventually i saw other people doing it and so i i just kind of he the mentorship was there but it wasn't like forcing me to do it it was more just like hey there's a, a little bit of opportunity here like you could capitalize on this if you wanted to Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think it's it's even like just planting the seed of an idea of how to think differently. On yeah. you could do this thing. You don't have to go to the grocery store and get a job. You can create your own space. I found that in my childhood, I needed someone. My brain wasn't where I needed someone to expand my space to have those thoughts. And so that's why I was curious how that happened for you. It sounds like it happened with your dad early on. Yeah, I think I had some unique boldness as a kid too. I was a competitive gymnast as a as a really young kid. And then saw a lot of those, what, what felt like peers to me, even though they were 10 years older, I saw them, a lot of them go to the Olympics. So I, I, I saw people within my sphere do really big things, not just like small town things. So that always just caused me to think a little bigger, I think. What led you into real estate? So I, I worked for a big ministry in Colorado Springs for about 10 years and I, I did all different kinds of jobs for them. And eventually it was kind of traded around to different departments because everybody just knew I was a builder and I would get bored eventually. And so I would go and like build a system for two years and then kind of move to a different department, build a new system, move to a different department. And in the middle of the pandemic, um, had a, kind of an opportunity to leave and move to Florida with my family and decided to make that change. But in the in the last few years, I was at that ministry. We were acquiring some real estate. I was learning a lot more about real estate. And I had purchased a house and we had updated it and forced a lot of equity. So we had purchased it for two thirty and put about $12,000 into it. But I did all the work. So I knew once we sold it, we were going to net about $100,000. And so that even just like built this idea machine and, and also built this trust between me and my wife that like, hey... This might feel risky, but there, there, there is a you know, 
a clear path to a big payoff. So, so then moving to, to Florida, I knew real estate was next. I didn't know quite how to do that. Here I was moving to a new area during a pandemic, jumping into a new industry and just kind of, I felt like, I feel like in general, like failure was off the table. I wasn't saying things like, if this doesn't work, I'll do this. I was just like, no, I'm going to figure this out. And, and just by sticking with it, I, I was able to find a little niche for myself in the midst of it. Yeah. I think the thing that I observed during that time was that no matter what it was that you were curious about and that you were learning about, you've always been really good at seeking out whoever the the innovator, a thought leader in that space is, and just finding a way to talk to them and getting them to help you without necessarily formalizing a partnership, but just having a conversation in a way that feels beneficial to them uh, to, to assist you in your growth. Yeah. And I think looking, looking back, I like see that as me just asking for access, like, I saw people ahead of me that were maybe they had built something that I could see myself building or wanted or admired in some kind of way. Yeah. And they had access to information or people that I didn't have access to, but I knew if I gained access to them, I could get that next level of access. And some of that sounds like I was I was using these people, but I was really just trying to grow myself and I know if I if I'm exposed to this kind of information, I might be able to be like this person. I guess this is my first formal question. So, okay. Say you have a business idea that's stuck in your head or a passion project that is like haunting you. How do you begin? I heard, I heard somebody say, I wish I, I mostly, the content I consume is mostly YouTube and podcasts and now quite a bit of podcasts on YouTube, which is kind of funny. But um, I, I heard someone say that, like, don't say a problem is unsolvable until you've spent at least five minutes trying to solve it. And I think part of it's that, like if you have an idea that's like stuck or if you have an idea like uh, something that feels like you could be passionate about or you could be good at it, like so often people around us are telling us or, or modeling to us that you can't take that risk or you can't try new things or like like Patrick, if you want to try Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like you can, like, but everything around you and your history tells you you can't. So but if you spent actually a few minutes talking to somebody that does it, it might show you that, oh yeah, I could do this. This isn't that unapproachable. So I think just spending some time actually like with a journal, like, okay, if I was going to do this, what's my, what are my first five steps? And then like, mm -hmm. okay, how, how can I accomplish step one in the next day or week or month? Is that what led you into YouTube? Because initially you had set out to build something in real estate. Yeah. When did YouTube become a part of that? And was it surprising yeah. what it eventually became? Yeah, of course. Um, so September, first, first or second week of September, I was on my way to the gym and I was listening to a real estate podcast. Some guys from Denver were talking about their YouTube channel, how they get two to three leads a day, talking about the kind of content they make, and something about it just stuck with me. And then the next day I listened to that same interview again. Then I reached out to both of those guys on Instagram and they were super encouraging. Like, yeah, go for it, man. Like you got it. They get, they gave me a rundown of like kind of their gear they use. And I, I honestly felt like I was like stealing their idea. Like 
uh, that's even why I was like asking them, like, can, can I take your idea and like do it here? Um, everybody steals everybody's ideas. So it doesn't matter. But that was September. I started the channel the third week of January, started doing three videos a week. And then I didn't have my first closing from it until the end of May. So, you know, it was eight months total, really a little bit less that it was like from idea to any kind of revenue from it. And that feels like an actually pretty short time span, right? Sure. But it was once, once I published a video and some people watched it, I didn't tell anybody like this is videos going live. Here's the link. Like I wanted all organic growth. And once it got like 10 views, I'm like, I need more videos. I'm like I can't do two a week after three a week. Like this is going to work. Cause if I had never just seen something happen organically like that, I didn't know yeah. that that could happen so easily, easily. I mean, it takes a lot of work and like effort in so many different like areas, but it felt like it was going to work. Yeah. I have a, I have a question on that. I think the hardest part is going from idea to execution. I think there's this whole, you know, Pat had talked about limiting beliefs and discipline, like thinking about the discipline, the execution, your own personal accountability and then just continuing to grind forward when nobody's cheering for you or you're doing it by yourself. Like how, how would you, how did that work for you or how would you encourage other people to go from ideation to execution if they're maybe not a disciplined person or they struggle with accountability? I think the idea of not being a disciplined person is just a myth. I think if you can be disciplined about brushing your teeth, you can be disciplined about anything. It's an excuse, I think, and there, we're always going to have excuses to not like risk something. And I think th the lack of discipline is a myth. Did you tell someone like, I'm going to do this thing and have people check in with you? Or was it all just kind of in your own little, in your head? Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely told some people and Patrick was probably the most involved in that initial process where he was like, Hey, have you shot any videos? Can I see them? Can I give you some feedback? Like that engagement was helpful, even though I'm like, I was even told him like, I'm not going to show you anything until after I publish something. Cause I, I don't want an initial, I don't want another thing in the way of me publishing something. But I had other people that were, you know, kind of knew that this idea was brewing, but didn't quite know how far along I was in executing it other than really my wife. So you created kind of a friendly, safe accountability structure that gave you flexibility to move and be messy at your own schedule, but also people to check in and encourage you. Yeah. And, you know, people that weren't, it's just scary, like creating content that is like a personal brand, you know, even, you know, the, the name of the channel is living in Tampa, but I am the brand of living in Tampa. So it's not like Sam is the brand. It's not the brand isn't Sam, but Sam is the brand. It's like kind of this like enmeshed strange relationship where I am the character. And I'm the stories and I'm the, the one interacting with clients initially, all these things. And it, it's scary, but the scariest part is like what people think and what people say. And then once you have a few like wins, once you have a few phone calls when somebody's like, gosh, that content you made helped me out so much. Like you brought up the exact questions I'm at, I've been asking, like it changes everything. Was that surprising to you? And have there been other benefits like that Yeah, in this journey? Yeah, eventually that was surprising to me. So at the time I was trying to find leads in, in all kinds of ways that people said, whether that was calling lists or 
doing open houses or some Facebook ads. Um, and those leads are really hard. And if you're good at converting them, like you can build a, a multi-million dollar business on that. Mm -hmm. But I, in the midst of that, felt like, how do I have enough leads and have enough good leads to where I can just fire all the bad ones? Like, how do I actually gain some, some leverage in the midst of this to where I can choose who I work with as a new agent that seems impossible, but I did it through like, actually like just telling my story and connecting with people. And then there, those kind of people that actually connect with my story are so sticky as clients. So if somebody's watched, um, it's a very big difference. If somebody's binged a bunch of my videos the previous day, or if somebody has been following the channel for six months, mm -hmm. If they're if they've been following for six months, they're very very sticky clients. Are you are you able or comfortable sharing any metrics on how many people did you win, how many you know commissions earned, yeah, buyer yeah. rep, just absolutely to throw some hard numbers at it. So in my first full year as an agent, I I didn't purchase any leads. Everything was organic, completely inbound, and I closed twelve transactions. So that I mean that puts me top you know, 20% of agents. That's amazing. The next year, so I made about $73,000 that first year. And my goal that first year was like, hey, I just want to cover my expenses. I have some savings if I can't, you know, make it work all the way, but I just want to cover my expenses. The second year, I made about double that, but I worked about half that. <laughs> so I, I made about, you know, 130, but I worked about 30 hours a week instead of 60 hours a week. And the reason I did that is because we had a new baby and like I was l looking to be at home a lot more. I wanted to be home by two o'clock every day instead of six o'clock every day. And how much of that was buyer, buyer rep, seller rep? Yeah. All of that was buyers. All of that was relocation buyers moving to the Tampa market. So that's really like what our, our marketing targets. And when a lot of people are, you know, in taught to target listings because they're more stable. We just went after buyers and we got really good at doing virtual tours for buyers, all those kind of things. Whenever people, you know, are annoyed with those kind of leads, we really capitalize on it. And are you in year three now or what's the timeline? Yeah, in, in, in year three now. And yeah, so if you want to look at like lead volume, so first year there was about, I think it was about 400 leads and it's, it's a unique type of lead because they have quite a few barriers before they could actually buy. You know, they don't, they're not often reaching out saying, Hey, I want to make an offer on this house. They're often reaching out saying, Hey, we're going to come visit in a few weeks. Can you give us some advice on where, to, where we should look around? And then it's another conversation after that. It's like, how did that go? Or do you want to see some places? Do you want to connect with our lender? Like it, it it's a little bit more of a, a long tail process, but it fills up your pipeline. And then a lot of those people they don't move across the country, but that's okay. So that first year, you know, we converted about 20%. The second year, lead volume went through the roof, like 100, over 100 leads every month, but conversion was, went way down because it was you know, even more tire kickers and a very unique kind of market in the, the height of the pandemic. So it's hard to com you know, completely compare. And I, I do this a lot where, you know, a lead compared to a closing is you can think about it in so many different ways. It's like pretty nuanced, but I, you can also just use it to make whatever point you want to make. I can show like, oh, we can convert them like this, or we can't convert them like, so I don't, I don't want to like choose my own point to make too much. 
<laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a quick uh, real estate nerd question if for any realtors that are listening to this. Um, did you have to teach people that you're their buyer rep and that they can work through you to go to listings as opposed to skipping you and calling the listing agent? Or did they... Did you do that any of that in your video or how did you work through that education process or maybe not at all? Yeah, so I I have a funnel kind of on the front end of if they reach out then you know we we convert them to a Zoom call. I do a 30-minute Zoom call with them and like build more rapport. And then they're they're typically asking what's our next step to work with you. So then I have okay. this spiel of like hey, I don't like to do buyer rep agreements cuz I want to be super easy to fire like if I'm not doing my job you need to find somebody else. If I'm not solving the problem, you need to find somebody else. And that like that builds even more rapport. And and sure, that part might be a little bit leaky in the funnel, but that's the kind of posture I want to have there. I want to hold people pretty loosely. And so a lot of it's that. Like, And I encourage people, if they're not ready, if they're six months out, we're probably not showing them anything. We're telling them, hey, go go check out these open houses. And like, let us know if you, if you have any questions. Okay, but you are in that Zoom call. You are doing the education process on how we are buyer yeah. rep works. Yeah. Okay. And typically, the kind of buyer that's moving across the country has bought and sold a few houses. Yeah. So they're more, they call them sophisticated, more sophisticated buyers than a, a newbie. Yeah, they are. Most of our buyers in the midst of the pandemic were putting down at least twenty percent. They were selling houses on the other end. Like, they these were like very qualified buyers. As this has grown, and you've seen pretty rapid success, uh, especially with the acceleration of YouTube growth. Did you start to look at YouTube as more than just a lead generation tool? Yes and no. I think living in Tampa, that channel is a lead generation tool. That's its primary goal. But I think the way that I approach it to keep myself doing it, to make it sustainable, I've approached it a bit differently. You know, you can, you kind of play two games at once. You're playing the YouTube game and you're playing the lead game. And they're different. They're very different things. You're trying to rank so people see your videos, and then the more views you have, the more potential you know leads you have. So you're playing two games at once, and like rank, like getting views, doesn't always equate to like converting those because your call to action might just not be connecting with people. Your stories might not be connecting with people. And I've talked to my competitors in my market too, and I know how I know what their leads are like. So I know that we convert a little differently than a lot of them. We probably convert a little bit slower. You know, a lot of ours are engaging longer before they reach out. But yeah, I started to view, I started just like YouTube. And I think of it kind of like, if you want to be successful at running, you guys are both runners. You kind of dive into the community of the running community, right? And you like, you think about it, you talk to people about it, you like are reading blogs about it, you're listening to podcasts about it. And YouTube is not different. It's not like real estate YouTube. It's like, no, this is this is a platform that everybody's trying to gain traffic on. And so I started to engage more with the, the YouTube community. And YouTube mm -hmm. in general is a very narcissistic platform. There's tons of content about YouTube on YouTube. So like it, it's there and that community is there and talking about it and people are trying to grow businesses that way and grow followings that way. So I just started to engage more in that community and, and try to learn from them. Who was one of the most helpful voices that you found in that space and how did you engage with them? Yeah. Um, so initially I bought a course from realtors that like have started a bunch of YouTube channels and they get a bunch, they do a bunch of volume off of, of these channels. They have channel, channels in about 11 markets around the US. That was a $300 course that I bought. Then 
about a year later, I bought a $2,500 course from a YouTuber named Ali Abdal. He's used to be a doctor. I guess he's still technically a doctor. He's not just not employed as a doctor, but he, he has a, a course called part-time YouTuber Academy. And I, my, my thinking behind that pursuit was I want to learn YouTube from YouTubers and not just from realtors trying to get leads. So that, that course was cohort style. So it was like live courses five days a week. And the people that were in my cohort, no one else was trying to make YouTube videos for leads. Everybody else was doing it for very different reasons. Most of them just trying to grow an audience. So I was, it, I was the outlier in that. And that was like really fun. For somebody looking at a housing market right now, mm-hmm. what is your advice as someone in that space, albeit biased in that space, yeah. towards purchase versus rental? What would you recommend to somebody that's, that hasn't purchased a home before Mm. And is thinking about yeah. buying a house now or just yeah. continuing to rent. Okay, let's just say, Patrick, you are moving to Tampa. I would absolutely recommend you rent because a market like this is, you know, 4 million people. There's so many things you don't know and you just don't know how to figure them out yet until you're here. But eventually, I, you know, there's the kind of this, this balance of like early in life, we want, we, want, we want a lot of freedom. So renting is a really good option. But later in life, we want more like leverage and wealth. And if, if we don't start building that kind of early, then you you kind of miss out on it. So like, l- let me think of like my own example. If I didn't buy a house and flip it while we lived in it and then make a bunch of money on it, then I couldn't have started this business. I just couldn't have. Like that's what provided the cash for this business. And so I think there's always opportunities and like if I, but I, I would never like push anyone into like like seeing the opportunity if they're not seeing it themselves. I'm going to pose the question that I get on a weekly basis. If someone's going to move somewhere knowing that they're, might, they might leave, so maybe they're going for an 18-month PA yeah. job or maybe a five-year deal for college or maybe they know they're going to leave and there's a timeline, how do they know when, when does a pencil or start to not make sense to buy versus lease? How do you know? Yeah, I, I mean, kind of the rule of thumb. So I, they usually talk about this when it comes to like refinancing. Like if you can, if you can refinance and lower your rate by one point, it's worth it if you're going to stay in the house for three more years. So that's kind of like a like a one point to three years is kind of that rule of thumb. And I think similarly, if you're going to like go somewhere and be there for three years and then sell a property, it makes sense. It but if you have any kind of aspirations of, you know, owning properties, like properties are not that difficult to own from a distance. Like if you want to buy something and then rent it out, you know, say, say they are a, a PA and they can get a zero down, you know, doctor's loan, like using that kind of a tool in a, in a unique market, like Tampa, they could buy a house in Seminole Heights, this cool area of Tampa for 250,000. They could live here while they're here for 18 months, working at the Moffitt Cancer Center, then they move away and then they rent that out to traveling nurses and they make, you know, four or $500 a month on it. Like, so there are, there's just like all, there's always ways to make money on it. Now it's not no work. Like it's still work. Like it's not passive entirely, although it's not a direct proportion to the amount of work, to the amount of money you make. 
it's still going to be work. If someone doesn't want to be a landlord, though, and they need to leave and they want to sell, how long would they need to live there to you know, not go backwards after maybe closing costs, things like that? Gosh, it's so hard because the, the market in the past two years has been crazy. So yeah, let's assume a normal non post COVID market with like two to 5% appreciation. <laughs> yeah. At, at least two years. So closing costs in the, in Florida are going to be about 3%. Is two years, the window, um, that you have to hold a property so you don't pay capital gains. No, that's different. And I wouldn't worry too much about that. Cause so that's, you know, that's really only on high value when it's a, when it's your primary residence. So if it, when it's your primary residence, it's only if it's over half a million dollars of profit that you have to pay capital gains tax. If it's an investment property, it's handled a little differently. So yeah, Ethan, I would go back and say double that actually, because you know, when you're selling, you're going to be paying like realtor fees as well, typically. So if you're paying 3% closing costs, you're trying to recoup that expense from initial. And then you when you sell, you're paying about one and a half percent closing costs and you're paying five to 6% in real estate commissions. If you're there two, three years, you might just break even. Okay. So two to three years is a nice rule of thumb for break even. Yeah. But I think it comes down to like what people want. And I think people mm -hmm. don't value that enough. Like, Hey, if you want to own a house and you break even at the end of it, is it worth it? Like that's really up for each person to decide. Right. Kind of moving back to the the narrative of you building and ideating and moving from thing to thing. How do you know? I, I kind of want to speak to this like hustle and grind mindset because I don't think that's you, but I think some people could see what you're doing and interpret you as part of that culture. How do you know when to quit and move on to something else? Like how do you assess a pivot and how do you execute that? Because from the outside looking in, it just looks like you move from success to success. And that can feel, I think, intimidating to people that aren't yeah. wired in the same way, drive-wise, or don't think yeah. they are. I'm a big Harry Potter fan, and that fandom came very late in life. Um, which, which school do you, which, what would, what, where would nah, the sorting I don't, I don't, put I don't care in that way. <laughs> Come probably, on. Sl probably Slytherin, uh, if I'm being honest. There you go. Uh, yeah. Um, but in the order of the Phoenix, which is many people's least favorite book because Harry complains a lot in that book, but when his friends are asking him to teach them how to, you know, defend dark arts, essentially, they're going on and on about all of his successes. And he has this line and I'm not quoting it directly, but he says, when you, it looks great when you say it all that way, but every single time. I felt like I was really lucky and I almost always had help. And I really resonated with that. Like it's easy to like look retrospectively and be like, oh, all of look at all these successes. Like I'm stacking these little wins or big wins. But it I it just feels kind of lucky that I'm like jumped in at a time I did, that I like had a unique skill set to make videos and to like learn how to be on camera, to like be in a market where I was, you know, telling the story of moving while other people were moving there people resonated with that story. Like all those things feel a little bit lucky. And then I eventually found people that could really help me with YouTube. And then that feels like I just had a lot of help too. Hmm. I do think it's important that you looked for help and asked for help and kept doing that as you moved yeah. from, as you move from question to question. Well, and paid for help too. Once you yeah. pre-qualified yourself. 
Right. Right. That I think that is a really important note. Like you invested pretty significantly in yourself over the course of the last few years. Yeah. And I, I, one of your questions you sent was like, what, um, what kind of questions do I often get asked? And like, one of them is kind of what you're saying. Like, how do you, how do you make it look so easy? Mm -hmm. And there's two things. Like I don't complain much and I just keep going. Like those are the main two things. Like I'm not complaining about this is a weird market. I'm just trying to figure out how to like make money in it. I'm not like complaining about like having to keep doing it or having to find like new, like high leverage opportunities. Like I'm just trying to find them always. Like mm -hmm. that's just part of like the, what I'm doing. It's not like, I think people just overcomplicate it. Yeah. Well, everybody wants a side hustle. Was this your side hustle or did you approach it differently with a more full-time engagement? I, pro I approached it uh, initially. I was probably doing this 80 hours a week, just trying to figure it out. And yeah, I didn't approach it as a side hustle at all. So I was, you know, reading it, like thinking about it, planning it, acting on it constantly. Yeah, I think that's the key differentiator is everyone wants a side hustle that takes two to six hours a week. And I don't think and people ask me oftentimes, can I become a commercial broker and be successful while working 18 hours a week? And it's just not. No. That's I, If you do it 80 hours a week for 10 years, year 11, you could probably work 18 hours, but there's no yeah. success without diving in. I think the part that I love what you said is you, you built your house, you had that maybe a cash out refi or some kind of event where you set yourself up into a space where you could peacefully and committed, you know, in a committed way, engage it as a full-time deal for 12 months, as opposed to trying to do too many things and being stressed out. I'm, I'm sure you were stressed out anyway, but you, you set up a, a foundation for yourself to at least figure it out. And in the midst of that, I'm still driving my 2009 Volvo. And like, I'm still thinking about, okay, how many months of burn do I have? And I, you know, I have more money coming in the future, but I'm still thinking about like my personal burn rate in the midst of that. And I think people lose sight of that and think like, oh, I had a $30,000 month. And I'm like, yeah, but the next two months I might not make anything. So like that in <laughs> real estate and business in general, like it, you know, comes and goes in waves. One thing that I, you know, I think I've learned about growing. So I, I feel like I've scaled it pretty quickly. I have a buyer's agent. I, I don't do any showings. I don't write any offers. I don't do, I don't answer the phone. Um, I make videos and I have zoom calls. That's pretty much it. And I've been an agent for almost three years, but I do a very, I do the most high leverage things, activities in the business. And then I just let the other things fail. And eventually I have enough padding to where I can pick up those other things and figure them out. But I, I, focus on the highest leverage. Like what are the things that actually produce like leads and revenue? And I do those. The rest of the mm. things, you know, I'll eventually come around and I'll like pick them back up and I'll like build systems for it. I'll try my best to automate. If I can't automate, I'll outsource. But I think people get caught up in like building everything before they start and, and try to grow to the next level. Like it doesn't have to be that pretty. Like I'm working with an SEO company right now to like build out more of my web presence. And they're like, send us your, your business plan and marketing plan. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have that. Like I have like my life plan, but like the business is just kind of serving me building the life I want. It's I'm not really like where I don't have myself in like a role for this business. So I, people, you can approach it so many different ways, really. As you think about a life plan, are there practical goals 
financial goals, emotional goals? How do you think of that for yourself and how did you initially frame it out? So, you know, I initially framed it out by defining what success is. Like say at the onset, I'm looking, okay, five years from now, when I look at like what I'm doing each day and I decide whether or not I'm, I'm succeeding at it, what is that thing? Like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Like as I wake up in the morning, what are my, my activities and am I be, am I successful in that moment? So I defined that as feeling calm and safe and being able to dictate what I do and think about. And that's kind of like what every entrepreneur wants, like that kind of freedom, that kind of leverage. But you, you don't get that at first. Like you have to like scale to that. And if you want that, like you have to give up a lot of control over certain things. And like, so it, it takes, a, it's like a winding road to get there. I don't really have money goals related to that though. I want to keep making more money every year. Like that's mostly what I want to do. To, to really live the life I want, I need a lot of wealth and a lot of cash flow. And, you know, real estate is a, a way to build that. Businesses are way to, ways to build that. Like there's a lot of ways to build that. And I have kind of some phases of my, my business and life in mind. But it's more that like defining success and then like looking far enough ahead to see like when I look back, like did I do the activities that helped me got there, help me get there? This is not a question I have. I'm asking for a friend. Um, how do you do that with a wife or a partner or spouse yeah. in a way that's true to what you want or need, but also honoring of your family, marriage, partnership, or anyone else that's a decision maker in your life? Mm. My wife just texted me and said that my my four year old was holding the ten month old, and he bit her lip, <laughs> and everybody started it. screaming. Uh, <laughs> like just texted you right now? Yeah, just now. Like just popped up. Oh, good. Helena was holding Elias, and he bit her lip. She burst into tears because she was in pain, but continued to hold him securely. It was so sad. Is she bleeding? Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, pretty funny. Um, I get messages like that a lot. Yeah, honoring of your spouse in the midst of it and honoring of like their their wishes and their desires is a big deal because, you know, first of all, I, I think we, we, we don't often in relationships define what our needs are without saying, this is my need and I expect you to fulfill it. What we, what we really in a healthy relationship should be doing is this is what I need and this is how I'm going to like seek that out. And then allow the other person to do that too, to find what their need is and to find how they're going to seek it out without the expectation that the other person is going to fulfill our needs. Now they because might play a role a in reader. it. <laughs> exactly. I expect my wife to be a mind reader constantly. I've gotten a little better about that, but I'm like, come on, Magneto, like just read my mind. Uh, technically that's Charles Xavier. Magneto sure, has... Metal abilities. <laughs> I know. Just the visualization of Magneto seemed better. Um, but I appreciate the correction. So yeah, I, I think it's just like finding a way to like live your lives individually together, and that's really complicated once you have a family. And like, my wife is at home with the kids and wants to be at home with the kids and wants to homeschool them and wants to be involved in that in some ways. And I don't want to be involved in that in some ways. And like, it's a constant like push and pull, right? Yes. Thank you. I'll <laughs> tell my friend that you said that. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, I want to 
be respectful of your time before you before we end here mm-hmm. do you have resource recommendations books speakers mm. thoughts youtube channels for uh the future audience that will find this useful yeah you know i as much as probably neither of you guys care for him gary v is a great resource for young people that want to accomplish anything mostly because he helps people get out of their own way and i think that's a big part of like just like acknowledging like hey i'm insecure and these are the people i'm insecure around so i want to get i want to not be around them and i want to like figure out ways to like bet on myself and go for what I, whatever I'm dreaming of. And that's like really challenging for everybody. Alex Ramosi is like a really popular voice in like the sales world right now in terms of like personal branding around business and sales. And he talks about this cycle that he calls mental masturbation, where it's like people just like read and like listen to podcasts and watch YouTube videos and they never actually try to apply anything. So I think it's it's worth actually slowing down in, in the content we consume because it's easy to consume content all the time and never actually like try to apply principles to your life or to your business. Mm-hmm. I think that's a similar dopamine hit um, to uh, something that I realized in myself to talking about an idea that I'm mm-hmm. going to build, but then yeah, I get yeah. the satisfaction of someone's response and it takes like that little bit of energy away and then I don't build the thing because I already got the satisfaction of someone's excitement about the idea and then I don't have to build the idea like I lost all steam. So now the the mandate is sort of build in secret up to a point so that I so that I don't remove that drive. Yeah. I think we've had a lot of wonderful nuggets related to for brokers realtors specifically in the residential field um what would be some resources that you'd recommend sam for that group specifically on lead generation youtube or how to get into that space specifically um i think people need to you know think more like the consumer you know and think about in the process when do people actually connect with somebody? And so a lot of my content is like upstream. Like people are like looking at pros and cons of Tampa. People are looking at top neighborhoods, like things like that. People aren't looking at the process. People aren't looking for closing photos. Like the kind of content that most you know realtors and brokers post actually just like brags. It doesn't actually add value. So if if you need you need to like find a way to talk to your consumers before they become your consumers and youtube and google are are the best way to do that because of the discoverability you know using it as a search engine like we have leads from our blog posts now like there's no reason that any realtor can't like hire an seo writer and write blog posts about their city right whether it's the best restaurants the best neighborhoods or you know the streets with the worst traffic. Like I could come up with hundreds of ideas for anyone. Like, and, and once you start doing it, the more ideas come. And then eventually like your audience gives you the ideas and your clients give you the ideas. And like people need to like actually add value and just start. Okay. And then quickly, you just mentioned a couple of them. What would be like the top five things if I'm calling moving about Tampa or the top five things that people ask you or that you would focus on if you were doing a channel in a different market yeah. that's earlier in the life cycle? So I'll do um, 
so I, I kind of talk about these four parameters. So proximity, style, size, and cost. Cost is usually like people's budget is pretty much what it is. Um, the size of house is pretty much like they need the certain amount of space. The style is like they probably ha are deciding between one or two styles. The biggest X factor is proximity. What do they actually want to be close to? What can they compromise on being close to? And then how can we like like draw this triangle between those kind of things and make it work? So actually, like if you're if you're making content, like actually talking about that, like what kind of compromises are your clients making and how are they like faring in the midst of that? But that's like the one thing to evaluate. A lot of people are moved to, moved to Florida and think I want to be close to the water. But a lot of people that move to Florida think an hour is close to the water. Other people think eight minutes, five minutes is close to the water. And so like having those kind of conversations is kind of a big part of it. I want to say one more thing real quick. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying, Patrick, about sharing the idea. I think um, one of my kind of coaches, real estate guys kind of above me in the brokerage, he, early on, I had a call with him and he's like this kind of brash, tough, like um, retired Marine. And I kind of was excited. I was like, I you know finally have two deals under contract at a time. And like, I was really excited about that. And he kind of just like shook his head and he's like, that's nothing, man. And he's like, stop being excited about such small things. And what it showed me, what my reaction was, was like, I, I want to stop listening to voices that are like, like excited or like impressed. People that are impressed are often the people that are like flattering you saying like, wow, you've done such a great thing. Like oh, finding a way to like lessen the impact of those kind of voices is really important. If you're going to build something, especially if you're going to build something that feels like some kind of creative output. How do you temper that though with feeling like joy and marking your own success? Like you don't want to shut that down fully. You just don't want it to manipulate you or, or move you. Yeah. I think it, it goes back to defining what success is. Like I feel calm and safe and I'm like in control of what I do every week. Like I'm successful. Like I don't need anybody else to tell me that because they don't even know that that's what my definition is. And like, I think that really helps. Yeah. That's really helpful. Awesome. Where can people find you? Yeah. Um, I am not very active in my own like personal voice on anything. Um, the Sam Cottle on like Instagram and Twitter is where I desire to be the most active, but I'm not actually because part of it is I, I don't feel like I have much to say there. Can you remind us of the name of your YouTube channel? Living in Tampa. And, and there's a few of them. So you have to look for my face, making some silly face in the thumbnail. Awesome. Well, Sam, this has been great. Cool. Thank you, guys. If you or your friend have questions, drop us a line at areyouaskingforafriend at gmail. Send us your questions there and we'll work them into a future episode. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>